0: Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share another podcast with you that I'm really enjoying. You know how passionate I am about learning from visionary changemakers that we feature on the podcast. Their grit and resilience are something that very much inspires me. On the other side of the world, in Hong Kong, my new friend Regina Larco and her team at Hashtag Impact, which is a podcast about stuff that matters, are elevating voices of social impact innovators too. Now, what really draws me in is the way that they share stories in a really authentic, vulnerable and relatable way. You're gonna hear from bootstrap social impact startups, award-winning eco-warriors and leaders in the nonprofit space. And what they share is going to help you with your own social impact too. So start listening to hashtag impact on all of your favorite podcast players or visit hashtag impact.com. Hey you, welcome to Evolve, a show to help you become a hero and solve the world's greatest challenges. I'm your host, Brandon Stover, and I interview social innovators, entrepreneurs, and thinkers about the global problems we face and the solutions that they have created to solve them. Today's guest is Celine Hollywell, founder and CEO of Loyal, which is a biotech startup that is developing drugs to extend a dog's lifespan, but with a twist. If this life extension research and drug development works for canines, her theory is that it could lead to breakthroughs for the rest of us humans for age-related diseases. She's going to explain why dogs are unquestionably considered the best model for human aging, and just how Loyal is moving leaps and bounds past other biotech companies in longevity. Now, Celine has an extensive background in neuroscience, gene therapy, nanobiotechnology, and deep tech investing. But as you will hear in the episode, she's very candid about what she doesn't know, how psychologically demanding being a founder can be, and even how she thinks about her own mortality. So let's hear from Celine about her mission to solve the world's challenge of health and longevity. In your writing, you have declared that the two things you plan to dedicate your life to are better medicines for age-related diseases and ubiquitous healthcare access. You also mentioned that health is the base for every human accomplishment and goal. So can you share why improving others' health is your personal mission now?
1: I guess to give a little bit of context, I, obviously I grew up in Texas. My parents are... I would, I would say we were lower middle class. And one thing we had a lot, of, and, and they're also not US citizens. So we had a lot of healthcare access and security as a kid. And actually until very recently, I had a lot of medical debt. Tens of thousands or more that <laughs> destroyed my credit score and made renting in San Francisco very difficult. And obviously it was also just a huge burden. I'm very lucky that I was able to pay it off because of basically the career I've been able to build for myself. But I think the thing that made me really cognizant of, it was just, there was a couple of things. It was, I think, the health anxiety that I had my entire childhood and the fact that I remember as a kid, like I needed to go to the ER for something and sobbing me like, we can't go. You can't. Afford-. I remember I gave my mom like a fake check for like all my like, Christmas savings hmm. because she told me on like, Thanksgiving that she was having a, a heart issue, but she couldn't go to the doctor. because She didn't have any insurance. Um, this is before there was like kind of the expansion of Obamacare. Which is the only reason she has insurance now. It's just, it's ridiculous. Like, right. why? It, it, it was just, it's just, I, as an adult now looking back on childhood slaves, like, why was that a variable? Why was I scared of health? And like, I still have like permanent issues that I deal with because we had this like health care insecurity. So, that was one of the reasons I went to Oxford, I went to Sweden, was actually, I wanted to experience like a society in a place where it's like this wasn't a variable anymore. And on the health and medicine side, for me, it's always been this area idea of like free will. So the fact that you know you could want to be there for your kid's wedding, or you know go retire at the, you know a nice place or whatever, and then health, your cells could not behave, something could go wrong, you know you just on the wrong side of chance. And for many of these diseases, uh, specifically came to this realization while working in the neuro-oncology clinic, there's nothing anybody can do for you. Like, it doesn't matter how much you try, how much money you put how. How, how much effort you have, how good of a person you are, you know, the, these are like undiscerning diseases. And just something about that, that like lack of free will just really, really got to me. So I'd actually gotten to college for art school and I switched to neuroscience to kind of like, just, basically, I just didn't want to live in a world where either of these things were the case yeah. and really worked on fixing that ever since.
0: Because I know it's going to surprise our listeners to hear why is focusing on a dog's longevity before humans the right solution for that mission?
1: I got into kind of neuron aging related diseases at 18 after working in a oncology clinic. and then I, a couple of years later became bullish on the thesis of targeting mechanisms of aging to target age-related diseases, So specifically the idea that there's conserved mechanisms by which our bodies age over time. And so while we define diseases as the end state of that, so one having you know Alzheimer's neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative disorders, cancer, some forms of cancer, osteoarthritis, Actually, it's these conserved ways by which our cells are aging over time, you know, for me, like me and you right now, that is actually a disease. And if you Hmm. target that, it might be a more effective way to prevent, dampen, ameliorate, age-related diseases that are very hard to treat when they're in their age end stages. So I knew I wanted to work on this. I went to Longevity Fund and worked with Laura there to help her fund aging companies. The reason why we went to dogs first was a couple of reasons, but it kind of built out of this frustration of what I saw was hampering a lot of aging companies. So kind of the same pitch we'd always get is we have this drug it extends lifespan in mice. It's great, you know, slide five, the FDA is evil. aging's <laughs> not a disease, you know, we can't run a lifespan study, Da da da. whatever. So we're gonna develop it for like this explicit indication instead, specific like, disease instead. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't make sense to me that we like, were taking these like conserved ways by which we age over time for that thesis I just explained, and then testing them in the clinic for specific end state diseases. And then expecting it to work and in expecting it to be relevant to aging in right. general. But basically I came to the conclusion that I couldn't work on this humans directly without like a billion dollars. And I also didn't think I was the best person to work on this, but dogs kind of offered this unique opportunity. And to be clear, I'm not the only person to have this thesis where, you know, we could target, you could develop drugs explicitly targeting the mechanisms of aging in dogs. That would be, Hit a huge unmet need for a number of pet parents. I am a pet parent. My dog is snoring behind me right now.
0: Mine's behind uh, me as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and it would also be a great way, I think, to socially target some of the reasons why people don't target aging in humans today. Um, to, I think, if you could buy an aging drug for your dog but not for your grandma, there's going to be a pressure from a societal standpoint of fixing or changing or modifying the regulatory frameworks. So that it's easier to get these sort of like drugs through, and that's one way to affect change when you don't have you know insane resources available to you.
0: Hmm. Well, to help our listeners understand, you know, why you care so much about longevity, will you share the story of your friend that you rented a room from in Southern California?
1: Yeah, I mean, he, hes one of many stories, but he was, I think, the like the the one to help me crystallize it a lot. So I had an internship in La Jolla, California. I was actually the first time. I really moved away from home and worked somewhere else. And I rented a room uh, from this very nice, uh, very sweet old man who was a veteran, who didn't have a lot of money and who really became almost like a grandfatherly figure to me and really took me under his wing while I was there. I returned for the following summer to continue to work underneath him or work at the lab I was at and stay with him. And I remember like when I, when I came back and I opened the door, he just, he had lost this, like he had this sparkle in his eyes. He used to run into Canada every day. And he had really lost it. But he, he told me is he had been diagnosed with, I believe it was pancreatic cancer, a very, very terminal form of cancer. And just watching over the summer, he went from, you know, functional, still running to, you know, losing himself and just watching him gra- gra- grapple with his mortality and. all the things that he wanted to do and he had a new girlfriend and he like wanted to see his kid's wedding and like all these things and just watching him come under this realization that he was not gonna be able to do any of that and just also just seeing this also like this also kind of went into the healthcare thing because he didn't have good access to healthcare. He was quite poor. He, I remember like very explicitly, he wore these like super ratty t-shirts. I used to overpay rent <laughs> because he like didn't have, he couldn't barely work. He didn't barely had any, and it was just so frustrating to watch it. And he, he died a few months after I left La Jolla. And just, I don't know, just like, I don't know that like that to me, really gets like unfairness of it all. He was such a kind person. He was such a good person. He died in such a painful way. And he had to live with this cognizance of his death for such a long period of time and lose all these opportunities that he had and lose his happiness that he had and it just always it just bothered me
0: well we'll do a deep dive into loyal in a bit but to help our listeners really understand the problem from a first principles perspective what are the things that are driving uh these issues within longevity or keeping us from solving it
1: so a lot of them are logistical Right. So uh, for context, a human drug to get approved on average can take, you know, seven to nine years in the clinic. It can cost a billion dollars or more. It's a lot of opportunity costs. It's very expensive. It's very challenging. So there's two like, kind of endpoints to that. I the other important thing is that you're very dependent on the patent structure, mm. because the only reason you're willing to invest that is because you have exclusive sales rights, basically, to that product afterwards. So it's a very regimented industry for that reason. It's a very, very high fail rate, something like 90%. The other challenge is that because it takes so much money and so much expertise and so much context, so much people and so many connections, and by the way, when you're drug, it's not like an easy DTC sales thing. You're selling to PBMs and pharma providers, Medicare and Medicaid, and all these very like challenging institutions to get into. Almost all biotech companies are actually often, even if they don't say it, like build to buys. Okay. where you'll sell the company you know after you show some like demonstrable efficacy of your drug and actually pharma companies use early stage biotech companies as a way to like externalize their R&D this is all problems for aging for a couple of reasons one on average there's not this pharma is not known for being the most like you know, contrarian institutions. Right. And all, and also just like an aging drug in general brings a lot of logistical challenges. It's much longer, it would always be a much longer study. So then you start hitting us these patent issues. The safety issue is really, really important. But then if you have a novel drug, you actually don't have long-term safety data, right? So then you would maybe want to look at generics, but there's no financial upside to generics. It might be hard to get funding as an aging company because who's going to acquire you? This is literally a challenge we had in our fundraising. They're like, well, who's going to upvalue you? Who's going to invest in an aging company next? How do I know my investment's not going to just die after we invest in you? Because there isn't an established market. Hmm. There isn't an established So you're building it new for the first time. And this is all important because everything that we're doing is super expensive. So dogs are interesting because it's literally an order of magnitude cheaper to do what we're trying to do. So while I still have to fight these challenges, we can bring our own drugs to market. We're not dependent on pharma wanting to buy us. We're not dependent on pharma selling our drugs for us because it's mostly a cash pay market. And these are all things that just like don't exist in the human space currently and just make it much more more difficult to build up robustness around that.
0: Can you define what longevity and extended human lifespan actually is that's different than somebody saying we're going to live to be 150 years old because that's not the actual realistic view of it?
1: No. So the way I think, I think about aging in actually a very unsexy way, which is just a preventative medicine mm-hmm. for multiple age-related diseases at the same time. Inevitably, if you prevent or delay, you know, neurodegenerative disorders and cancer and dementia, you're going to live a longer life, right? Because there are some individuals who don't develop these diseases or develop them much later, and they therefore live longer than those who develop them early. And I'm sure there are some, you know, underlying, you know, causal aging mechanisms or just thought to be like evolutionary aging mechanisms targeted, like on average just bring the shift over. So not just bringing everyone to the healthiest, but also shifting over. But you're not going to have like 150-year-old people as any of, I think, the compounds or candidates Mm. that anybody's looking at today. And this is actually like a hill I will die on, (laughs) is how destructive it is for the aging industry to say shit like thousand-year lifespans or like 180 or like anything that's like controversial like that. Because it's actually, we're basically trying to create a more effective, more accessible, a less human suffering way Mm. of targeting the diseases that we already pay for, we already deal with but we deal with them at the end stages when the drugs don't work very well and they cost half a million dollars a pop.
0: Right. And we're trying to make our life in those, you know, last years feel like what our life is in our younger years, like trying to extend that quality of life rather than, you know, extending how many years we're adding on.
1: Exactly. I mean, think about it, right? Like it, it's actually it's a huge burden on a younger generation, especially those who like don't come from money. If they're, a, you know, an only parent or an only child, and then if they to take care of their parents and their parents don't have retirement because they weren't working and then they become ill, you're not going to take as many career risks because right. you have to pay for your parents' care. If your parents stay long- healthier longer, if they stay economically viable longer, which is a very transactional way of wording it, that is a net benefit for the next generation to be free to create as much value as they want to create.
0: Well, let's go ahead and dive into Loyal, which is a biotech startup developing drugs to extend a dog's lifespan. Will you elaborate on what Loyal is creating and how it will help the dogs in that situation?
1: Yeah, so we're basically a translational aging company. Our goal is to bring forward the first drugs that are clinically approved for lifespan and span extension. We are we have two core products. We have one that's targeting the way by which we hypothesize longer dogs have shorter lifespan. So the larger the dog is. The shorter, on average, their lifespan is, is actually a very strong negative correlation between dog size and lifespan, and so we're trying to ameliorate that. Uh, and then our second drug is targeting um, metabolic dysregulation with age, which is a core aging mechanism. If you've heard of caloric restriction or, you know, metformin or rapamycin, right. most of these drugs target metabolic pathways. And so we have not metformin, not rapamycin, drug that we're developing that theoretically, if efficacious, would be across multiple dog sizes, multiple dog breeds for targeting all-cause aging.
0: From these studies that you're doing on dogs, what are you learning from, you know, the science perspective that's going to translate over into human health?
1: So most importantly, well, so there's two important things. One, it's target validation. So none of the drugs they're bringing forward for dogs would be commercial candidates for people, but they will validate their drug targets. So the things, and then you could develop novel drugs, better drugs, more specific drugs for for those things that they're affecting in the body to have their potential health span and lifespan benefit. The second one is how to quantify aging. And mm. uh, nobody, there's not like a true like accepted mechanism right. to quantify it. So it's really, how do you run these studies? How do you think about these studies? How do you validate something works? How do you validate something works in the short term to then like, uh, causatively show that it works long-term. And these are all open questions.
0: How are you guys gaining metrics uh, around that, you know, being able to quantify aging? Cause like in the biohacking space, there's a lot around like using VO2 max and using HRV and these different metrics to kind of like compile together and see, OK, am I doing well at my age for those numbers?
1: Yeah, I mean, so we look at a lot of different things, some of which I think would be familiar to people, some of which I think are less familiar to people. But on average, it's just these it's, it's a hypothesis. We don't actually know which ones are actually going to be relevant or not, which is why okay. we look at so many.
0: Okay. So let's say the drug works fantastic in dogs. What is the process from going from a drug for a dog to one for a human? You mentioned, you know, all these challenges that you would have to go against if you were doing it straight with humans. Mm -hmm. Are you still going to have to go through those FDA regulations and trials as you transition over?
1: Yeah, we'll still have to face the challenges. The idea is that we'll have more data and understanding of aging and also have a a precedent that has been set in dogs. Precedents Mm -hmm. are very important in regulatory change. But that's the big one, and also just if you think about it. So when you before a human drug goes into human studies, you do a lot of animal work. You can think of our dog work as, in addition to bringing a product over to for pet parents to treat their dogs, as also like the most robust preclinical research one could do mm-hmm. for an aging drug or aging mechanism.
0: You mentioned earlier being part of the longevity fund and seeing a bunch of pitches and the ways that people were trying to bring a biotech startup into the space. How is cellular longevity structured differently than those biotech startups that are going to make it more of a sustainable business model?
1: Well, because we're going dogs first. So we can, it's really not that expensive to bring a dog drug to market. We spend a lot of money because we do a lot of like things in parallel for aging in general, but we don't actually have to. Like it's, you know, if I'm doubling numbers and being aggressive It, you know, might cost 25 million to bring a dog drug to market, which is like not even the price of a phase one clinical study for people.
0: Okay. Is there any models that you've seen from those other biotech startups that could be sustainable business models as well?
1: I mean, if they raise a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I think BioAge is a really good example of a company. They in-license existing human drugs that have existing safety packages and are developing them novel or their, sorry, aging indications. So immune aging is a big one that they're interested in, for example. That saves them a lot of money because they know the drug is safe. They don't have to do all the novel compound development, and they have something that's been in people before. So while they still have to spend, you know, a lot of money to actually like bring this thing to market, it's a more much more reasonable. Number. And if it fails, it's going to fail probably in a pretty specific way, like not being relevant to like aging in this sense, sure. not because there's some weird toxin that comes up that nobody could have predicted.
0: From the SpaceX playbook, because I know you're a fan of Elon Musk, what was yes. it of approaching customers in that way that? Um, inspired you with oil is there anything that came over in it's the same what, playbook
1: it's also what the customers i appreciate that he is not single-handedly but you can put a lot of responsibility to him getting full excited about space again in a modern way and kind of really being the genesis of this industry around modern day space and modern day space races i mean aerospace engineering famously insanely difficult
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: but And people tend to think like are willing to invest in it now. They're willing Mm -hmm. to work on it now. They're willing to take moonshots on it now. I think in part because it's been validated, saying worthwhile to work on by these like early entrepreneurs. And I think that needs to happen in aging too. There's so few aging companies. Mm. So few. This I think aging can be bigger than oncology. You can definitely build a multi, multi, multi billion dollar company in aging. And it's not zero sum. Like I want to build the big one. (laughs) I want to build the space like an aging moderator of aging. Whatever, right? But there's going to be a lot of aging companies if we're successful. Sure. And I really want to be that inspiration for that. That's really the big thing, uh, the big like, metaphor
0: yeah. for me. And h- how are you using that as inspiration? Or how are you inspiring these other people to come in the space like that?
1: Do things like this. I try to be candid. I write a lot about my experiences building in biotech. I try to bring a transparency. We do a lot of press for reasons like this. We. I also think, just like in general, I'm a very different type of founder. For this type of company, it's not very common to have a mid twenties. Can I call myself mid twenties anymore? Mid to (laughs) late twenties, sure. Uh, Female founder building a biotech company, and I tried to really be candid about that. As a good example of yes, like you can do hard things in this space too. Nobody's shocked if you see a mid twenties, you know, space space founder, right? But it's still not really a thing in in bio.
0: Thinking of the people that you're hiring into this company, you need a lot of experts around you, and you mentioned Mm -hmm. being a younger founder. How have you drawn those people in and been able to be CEO over them when they may have many years of expertise over you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this thing's about how you think about leadership, right? I see myself as a facilitator. I didn't have the initial thesis, I am technical, but I am clearly not the best person in the world to run the science. So I hired the best person in the world that I could find, but that run the science to run the engineering, to run all different verticals that we're running on. And I think that's actually something that's very refreshing to people. Like I facilitate money in an environment, a culture, and a team to run on an idea ambitiously and get out of their way. Hmm. (laughs) I think that's actually been a huge thing. It's like, I don't have ego about literally anything except getting a dog aging drug approved. There's no like personal buy-in besides anything besides that. And I I think that just like makes it easier for people to build their legacies within Loyal, which is a pretty compelling offer.
0: An important person in your story that you mentioned earlier was Laura Deming, who is the founder Mm -hmm. of the Longevity Fund. What did you learn from her in terms of leadership or startups leading you to start your own startup?
1: Oh, everything! Laura is like the reason I was able to transition from academia, Texas, Oxford, Science Land, to the frameworks that you needed to have to run a company, build a team, grow at the rate that you need to to build a company. All of that, and that I learned that basically from like failing while working for Laura for <laughs> two years. <laughs>
0: What are the steps that you had to take to go from academia in order to go to the world of startups? Because I know there's a lot of people that are creating great solutions in academia, but they don't get out of that locked up box and come out into the world and try and put it into solutions.
1: For me, it was pretty serendipitous. Like, I didn't have a great time at Oxford. I, I was doing well academically, hmm. um, and I loved the city and I loved the stuff I was working on. But I knew I didn't want to stay. I was really frustrated by the higher cool nature and how I was being treated. So I reached out to Laura Cole and I just asked if I could come do a two week internship with her, just because I wanted to learn about like how how this world worked. And she said, yes, I flew out. She gave me a full-time job offer. She gave me no time at all to decide if I wanted to drop out of my PhD or work for her. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the opportunity. So really, it was like being willing to move to the next shiny thing when Mm -hmm. it made sense. There's a subtlety between being willing to change things and make hard decisions. Leaving Oxford was hard. I sobbed on the plane the entire way back. Um, I sobbed a lot (laughs) those few weeks. Uh, especially like getting into Oxford was a good thing. That was a huge dream of mine. But, you know, it was a willingness to sacrifice for something bigger and for me to learn more on and not being so, but it, it wasn't a lack of commitment. Like, that's the important thing. I think I see what I see a lot of people now is they like oscillate between like, I did this, this, did this, right? And like they're right. always micro optimizing. You don't want to micro optimize. You want to take big strategic steps when it makes sense. So I was committed to Oxford. I worked at Oxford as if I was committed to finishing my detail until there was a very strong reason that I wasn't committed anymore, which was to go work. And I'd had opportunities before that. And those wouldn't have made sense to leave Oxford. And so I think it's a very really important differentiation to figure out is like, when does it actually make sense to leave and why?
0: What made it so hard that you were, you had such an emotional response to it for so long? And then like, how did you work through that response so that you were choosing the right thing?
1: I mean, it was hard because I'd worked, it was such a validation, right? I think. Like if you kind of grow up in, you know, normal land and like, you know, your parents don't get to Harvard or Stanford or whatever to get into a university like this, there's an external validation that you're smart, that you have high potential. It's like rather safe that you're going to be like mild to moderately successful, basically no matter what you do, as long as you complete it. Right, It's a guaranteed life path in many ways. And sometimes it's very tempting to go down. Also, it was fun, right? Sure. Oxford was cool. It was a great place to live. It was amazing to live in this like, university town. But I think what was important was to understand why did I want to stay there? What was the strategic reason that I was there? And did I already get most of it? And I think the big reason, in retrospect, I was there was to learn about you know how the world thinks and how hierarchy works and how... Um, the big thing I learned is that competency, I always thought competency was so strongly tied to titles, actually wasn't. Uh, one of the big issues with like my supervisor and the stuff I had there was that I was honestly more competent than him, hmm. despite him being the person above me and me not. And like seeing that actually was very helpful because I was like, oh, like it's all BS, right? Like this isn't a like a intelligent test or anything. It's just like, you know, political. And I never understood that about the world before. So like, that that was a big part of it for me was just like learning that and then getting that stamp of approval. Like I still use that. I go into Oxford or I did for a long time. There was an external proof that I was smart, but I got that on day one I'm getting in. I didn't need to stay there for three years. The right. PhD did not actually give me that much more.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting in the time that we live now, especially you are writing about your journey, like on your blog you post and are very candid about the processes that you've had to go through. And that is being more valued than say a stamp from Oxford is in some circles. Being able to put yourself out there, be vulnerable and show... What you actually know and what you're capable of doing can lead you to better opportunities than, say, getting a stamp from somewhere.
1: Now I index more and I would anybody listening, I'd recommend them do this. A lot of what I wrote in the beginning was not useful to literally anyone, but it was useful to me to learn how to write. <laughs> uh, and now I uh, literally yesterday had somebody come up to me and uh, in his words, fanboy <laughs> over my writing to me because it's helpful, right? So I really recommend that. And I love saying that when people want to apply or work at Loyal too.
0: Part of your writing has been to write a playbook for like how to build a biotech startup so you can bring people mm-hmm. behind you. You extensively wrote on that, so I ha- won't have you retell everything. But if somebody has an idea in the biotech startup space, what are the first like two or three steps that you would tell them that they need to go down?
1: Hmm. I think it depends a lot on who they are and where they're coming from. Uh, I think the first thing is talk to a lot of people. I, I, every time I've ever assumed anything, Positively or negatively, something bad has happened. Mm. (laughs) So I think it's like, understand why, why doesn't this fail? Why wouldn't this work? What is going wrong? Like what, why hasn't somebody done this? What does the field look like? Like really understand, understand your field deeply, talk Mm. to the actual first person characters in your field and really, really get that. The second thing I would say is really understand building a company. And what that actually is, so like one thing I'm very like candid about is I spend a lot of time just doing people stuff, <laughs> and replying to emails, and thinking about investors and fundraising. And I, I love these things. Like, don't get me wrong. But if I had started a company with the uh, naive idealism that I was going to get paid to think about aging science all day every day, that that, that I would be disappointed. So just mm-hmm. really understanding what it comes into the fact that like being a founder is actually in many ways terrible because you are. If you are good, you are constantly cognizant of all the reasons why you are bad. <laughs> uh, and that it, you are always having to be the most mature person. Everything always falls to you. It is your responsibility for everything. And that's just like, I, I think a lot of people don't really realize that going in.
0: Sure. Well, you're, you're also a solar founder currently. So you don't have somebody to help hold that burden. How do you use that as a superpower rather than a hindrance?
1: I don't know. I just like try not to have an emotional attachment to my flaws. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the biggest thing. Because it's like... I only, again, I try and it's hard, right? But I try to say and feel that like the only thing I care about is getting an aging drug approved. I don't care if I look stupid in the short term Mm. and I don't care. I mean, I do care if I'm embarrassed, but I care because it decreases the probability of getting an aging drug approved, not because it reflects on my ego. And then I just also try to be really cognizant of like where the biases are. Like everybody has like childhood biases. So one of mine is I really like to be recognized. I like people to recognize the like sacrifice I made for them. That's bad because I can actually lead to toxicity, lead to frustration. I don't think I'll ever fix that, but I can be cognizant of and like bias for it when I'm, you know, doing something.
0: Is there ways that you flip that to use it for something positive? So I can think of that same flaw because I often have a similar flaw of wanting to be important, wanting to be seen in that light, recognized. Mm -hmm. And going back to like the Elon Musk example, he gets seen in a major light, but he's helping to inspire a bunch of people. Do you ever see any of your flaws in that way where they could be a positive aspect?
1: Yeah, I think you can recognize your flaws pretty, pretty easily. But that's something I do. I to be clear, I think if a psychiatrist is listening to this, they would maybe say, Don't do that.
0: <laughs> right.
1: But it's something I've done that I find works really, really well. I think it's just like under like you don't it's just understanding it, right? Like it's understanding what are the motivations that I might be hiding from myself as to why I want to do something a certain way and why I'm feeling a certain way right now. And that's all you can really do i uh, basically you just don't want, you don't want to have unknown unknowns in terms of your personal work and like that's what scares me is like what mm. do i not know that i don't know about myself that's causing me to be in a certain way
0: is there ways that you go about discovering that maybe with your team or like having feedback so you have a mirror I ask
1: for a lot of feedback yeah that's a big one it gets harder with size because before i was like Everyone, one, one I would ask for feedback. Now I'm like, oh, 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 I really to it? like, if I fuck up, it's in front of everyone. It's in front of forty people, not in front of like two. You just gotta keep on doing it, and it sucks. But sure, that's why it's miserable because you you get really upset. <laughs>
0: What's been the hardest part for you building loyal that you've had to face, and how did how did you overcome that?
1: I think it's like managing my emotions and not feeling frustrated. So so I think there's a you have to figure out which hill you want to die on. You have to figure out which issues you really care about. And then you only want to push on those and not push on other ones. So for example, I get super frustrated by sexism. I'm mm. insanely competent and have to deal with crap and, and watch like male founders who are less competent than me like raise more and get more generosity given in terms of you know, their growth or their potential that I don't get. I often feel like I can't make a mistake. And if I do something, you know, I'll lose any trust that I've built, which is a very frustrating place. But you know what? I used to be so bitter about it. Hmm. And that's actually like a huge, it's a turnoff for somebody, right? And so really like the only way to actually change what I care about, which is like that not being a variable in the assessment of me and my performance is to set the example. It's to perform excellently, right? And so I used to, when I would feel sexism, just point it out every time and be like, hey. And like, I think in some situations that was good. In some situations that wasn't actually very strategic because now this person's more like careful around me Hmm. because they're going to be worried about getting like me too, or these aren't harassment situations, but like, you know what I mean? Like they're going to be worried about getting like called out for that. And so while it was like short-term satisfactory to be like, by the way, you're like, you know, Main VC is a sexist dickhead. It was not long term actually lighting to the thing that would actually change why those behaviors are that way, which is like they have no examples or barely any examples of deep tech female founders making them a billion dollars.
0: Well, some of the other writings that you've had are sharing, you know, your learnings of building loyal. And one of those mm-hmm. that I uh, resonated with was not needing to fully visualize the endpoint to realize it will be valuable. Can you kind of expand on this and what it meant for you?
1: I mean, I think the big takeaway here is like hiring really, really good people who are aligned with you in terms of mission and caring about it and then giving them reason to run. I think if I if I'm the bottleneck for having to understand everything fully for something to happen at Loyal, that doesn't like I'm not always right. I'm far from always right. And I can't have to like if I had to have that vision, that isn't I have the vision on like some aspects of the company to be clear, but then there's gonna be people who have backgrounds and perspectives and ideas that are totally orthogonal to anything i've ever thought about and they need to have the freedom to run on that too and there needs to be ways to check like if it doesn't make sense like we need to know why and things like that but that's been like for i wrote that in reference to our engineering team because now i can like tell you why it's valuable i couldn't really before it was really more of like we thought this person we were hiring tom was quite great and you know he'll do something valuable And I couldn't tell you the difference between a data scientist and a data engineer before we hired our head of data science and data engineer. I still might do like a somewhat bad job, but it didn't matter Hmm. because they were amazing. And they like did things for this company that I couldn't have told you they were going to do in the forefront. And you just like you have to be okay with that.
0: One of the things that people look for, you know, in an employer or in a leader is somebody that's you know competent and confident when you are very self-aware you often like undermine your own confidence cuz you're questioning is this and actually a good belief is this the right direction which is a good thing cuz it's helping you you know work through that mm-hmm. figure it out but when you're leading how does that come off to other people is it a hindrance is it a good thing
1: no i mean i think it's just like a just truth seeking hmm. i'm confident enough that i'm willing to be wrong and ask questions and look like an idiot and admit that i don't know something if i was externalizing my confidence onto being right or my idea being the one that's decided on, then I think I actually would have like less respect to the team and also they would perform less well. And so nobody actually, I mean, maybe they do, but I don't think people question my competence because they see that I have confidence in asking these questions.
0: Yeah, perfect. Well, you're building something that hopefully impacts millions of people. And in order to do so, you're sacrificing a lot. being a founder, we've talked about a lot of the things that you've gone through. How do you think about sacrifice and why do you feel it's your responsibility to be on this mission?
1: I think it's like the morally right thing to do to do this. I have a skill set and an ability and a desire and a all the variables and the background and whatever to build this. And I think it would be unethical if I didn't hmm. build it. I don't know if that's the case for like every type of company, but I think with something like this, where um doing it could facilitate so many other people, could help so many dogs and hopefully people one day. I just like, I feel like I have to. Like it's my responsibility to do this as well as I can. And that's actually a nice motivator when you inevitably get tired is to externalize the reason as to why you need to do it. I'm also doing it for myself too. Obviously, I mean, I want to do this. I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't doing loyal, but it's easy to get burnt out personally on something. I'm Not that I'm burnt out on loyal, but like you could like become that way. And I would still do it because it's the right thing to do, in my opinion.
0: Sure. And the way I like to think about it is like, if long term that it didn't work out, you know, you're still proud of yourself at the, you know, at the end of your life and that you dedicated your life to something that was bigger than you. And you can look back and be proud of what you've done. Yeah. Working in longevity. How do you think about your own mort- mortality? Because I wonder sometimes when we're focused mm. on longevity, are we just afraid of our own death, trying to extend the inevitable?
1: I just like slightly spicy opinions on this. I think one of the common hallmarks of people who are not high quality, who work in aging, is that they're trying to work on their own mortality. Hmm. I have a fear of death as most people do, but it's not in the like fear of mortality. It's like actually like the fear of the impact it would have on other people, if that makes sense. Okay. And, and I, I'm not motivated by that personally. Cause I, that's more of like, a, I hope I don't get hit by a car. <laughs> it's not like a man. I hope I like live to 120. I very like con- deliberately work on this because I think it's the best way to broadly treat aging and age-related diseases and like the one of the primary sources of misery for human. And I would like very happily sign a contract tomorrow to say that I like, can never, ever take any of our drugs. Right. It's never personally benefit me if it would like increase the probability of success of loyal. I think the minute you get emotionally intertwined with your product with your work, with your science, but just something that was so common in the aging field, I think you lose a degree of clarity that, um, you need to have when you're working on a problem that's technically difficult.
0: Right. Well, before I get to my last question, is there a call to action you would like to leave our listeners with today?
1: I think it's just have the bravery to work on important problems. It doesn't have to be AJ, but it should be, in my opinion, there's a lot of things you can do. And there's a lot of ways you can do it. And you don't have to be a scientist or an engineer mm-hmm. or something, but you can figure out what you're uniquely good thing is use that on an ambitious problem or for facilitation of working on an ambitious problem. And I'd really, really emphasize to people that it's an important thing to do. And it's also very satisfying.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that will follow into our next question of how can we push the world to evolve?
1: That's a great question. So this might be a bit too logical for like a very philosophical question. But I think the the way the first thing I'm thinking of, like after one of the initial frameworks that Laura and I have, is that we needed to have a shocking demonstration of efficacy, something, a narrative and a story and a visualization that anybody could understand, that would prove this point. Right. So I really like I, I talk about and I explain my thesis for aging that it's not about thousand year lifespans, immortality or fear mortality or all these things. That's not that's like going to convince some people. I think if you actually want to have the masses of people actually like shift their mindset around treating aging itself and treating and preventative medicine and all of these variables, you need to have something that just like, so obviously just like changes how they've thought about the problem from day one. And one of the theses of loyal is that doing this in dog and having that first ever dog aging drug is a shocking demonstration of efficacy, theoretically, to really help people think that way. Um, so, I guess what I would say is when you think about a way to change and evolve mindsets, maybe there's like the way that it should be, or like in your head, to so me, like, oh, it should be like everyone understanding the aging system, being super into it, and like understanding how we're coming from. Like, who cares about that? Just like care about the endpoint, which is like people being cognizant of it. And then, like, mm-hmm. what's the most effective way to communicate that endpoint to the biggest amount of people? And i very clear and effective way. And I think if people can like really detach like what they personally want the world to be like and just right. instead say like, this is what we, what the goal is and what's the most effective way to get there, that can really help with a lot of, a lot of life problems. But I think also the evolution of thinking and people.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that answer, Celine. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We'll put uh, links for everything in the show notes for Loyal. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Evolve podcast. Links to everything we discussed today are available in the show notes. Transcripts are also available in the show notes. And everything can be viewed on our website at evolve the dot world. That's evolve the dot world. My one ask for you is to share this episode with others. If you know someone who is interested in social impact, social entrepreneurship, or just making a difference in the world, please share this episode with them. The challenges in our world need all of those who can contribute to existing solutions or create entirely new ones. So please share this show with those kind, intelligent people who are just like you. Until next time, my friend, keep evolving.